Good afternoon. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Brad Wilson of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions here at Princeton University. We are uh, uh, beginning our last final conference of this academic year uh, on uh, 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 the political god of our times, civ civic religion and democratic polities in Europe and the United States. Uh, I am very pleased to introduce our conference chairman, Professor Maurizio Veroli, uh, an eminent uh, student of politics and of political philosophy uh, and a kind of transatlantic patriot uh, who has, has thought deeply about uh, the theme of this conference and uh, indeed is responsible uh, for our having it at all. It was his brilliant idea uh, that we are now uh, putting into effect. Uh, so please uh, join, join me in both thanking and, and welcoming uh, Professor Maurizio Veroli. I've been, thank you very much. It's a great honor for me to welcome you all in Princeton. Personally, and on, on behalf of the Madison uh, program, I must say that I've been here in Princeton now, I guess it's 18 years, so I'm an old-timer, Paul, an old-timer, I qualify as an old-timer, not as an old-timer as you are, but almost. Uh, but certainly I never heard in my life the concept of a trans transatlantic patriot. It's the first time in my life, and I am moved to tears by such a deep concept, the transatlantic patriot. No one has ever called me in this manner. So I thank you very much, Bradford, for your very kind words. It's an emotion. Uh, I owe a special thank to the Madison Program for accepting uh, the idea of a conference on the political god of our times, uh, politics and uh, democratic politics and uh, religion. I owe them a special thank and I owe a special gratitude to my colleague, Professor Robert George, the eminent director of the program. And the reason why I owe him a special thank is because, as you probably know, Professor Robert George and myself, we disagree practically on anything. Uh, friendship aside, uh, the only thing that uh, united, unites Professor Robert George and myself is the very thin wall that separates our offices in Corwin Hall. <laughs> and uh, in uh, those offices we teach, from those offices we teach in a different manner. Professor Robert George teaches the road to salvation I teach the road to damnation, not exactly the same message. This is what makes my gratitude particularly deep because I really think that what a great university is for is the exchange of idea, reason, and sustained disagreements among scholars who respect each other on a personal and intellectual level. This is also what the free country is for, by the way, the ability to sustain intellectual exchange. The subject matter of our conference is not God the Creator, is not the God who speaks 
to individuals' consciousness, not directly, this idea of God, but the God who inspires hope in the salvation of the soul, who rewards the good people and punishes the wicked. And uh, it's not even the subject of our conference, the political God, in the sense of the political God that totalitarian regimes were able to create the totalitarian regimes of the 20th century. You know that the expression political God has been used to describe the project of totalitarian regimes, most notably Germany, Italy, under Mussolini, Germany, under Hitler, and Soviet Union. We all know that totalitarian regimes of the 20th century wanted to generate a devotion comparable, comparable, not exactly the same, but comparable to the devotion of the believer in a revealed religion. And we also know how they tried to attain this goal. The ideology presented and defended like, like a system of dogmas. The leader worshipped as omnipotent and infallible, the dissidents treated like heretics, the creation of a gigantic and awesome ritual, the control of every aspect of individuals' lives. That was the political god, the political god of totalitarian regimes. Now, the experience of this political god is part of the European history. European history. Italy and Germany had totalitarian regimes that succeeded in developing political religions in this sense, in the sense that were able, they were able at least in part to generate faith and devotion to a degree with an intensity that was unknown in liberal states. Spain had an authoritarian regime that relied heavily on the alliance with the Catholic Church. I'm sure that the friends and the scholars whom we have invited from Italy will touch those issues. However, I think the central issue is civic religion. And as a Republican, as Republican and democratic political thinkers have interpreted what civic religion is, I leave aside for the moment the differences by civic or civil religion scholars have meant the faith in the principles of political liberty and in the republican institutions that protect political liberty. Civic religion is the individual's sense of duty the sense of duty to serve the common good and the constitution. A sense of duty understood in its genuine sense. Namely, the, an obligation with one's own conscience. An obligation that gives the moral strength to discharge the difficult tasks of citizenship. And even to sacrifice oneself if necessary. That is civic religion. 
is an inward sense of duty. Duty to uphold, to sustain common liberty. Now, one might argue that civil religion is the same as civic consciousness. Personally, with many doubts, I tend to believe that historically and theoretically the two concepts are different. Civic religion is a stronger concept than civic consciousness. The content of duty is the same. But the person who really lives by a civic religion perceives his or her civic duties as absolute duties. Civic consciousness is, like any form of individual consciousness, more vulnerable to passions and interests. As I say, this is just my opinion, and I am prepared to change it, and I will probably change it as a result of our discussions. And if among the results of our discussions there will be attaining a clearer interpretation of the connections and differences between civic consciousness and civic religion, I will be indeed very happy and satisfied. Now the other question that shall doubtlessly occupy us today and tomorrow is no less difficult and no less fascinating. And it is the relationship between civic religion and revealed religions, particularly the Judeo-Christian traditions. Does an healthy civic religion need the help of revealed religion, or should civic religion guard itself against revealed religions or against some of them? It is a widely percep uh, shared perception that the United States and most European countries are answering the question in a different manner. In the United States, religion seems to display a growing capacity to influence political and social life. In Europe, politics seems to be more effective in keeping religion outside the public square, the public sphere, side legislation as the conclusion of the debate over the reference to God on the preamble of the European Constitution indicates. Despite these differences, the intellectual debate in Europe and the United States over the nature and the proper sphere and role of civic religion shows important analogies on both sides of the Atlantic. The advocates of religion accuse secularists of having debilitated the foundations of moral life and duty, and as a result, weakened the basis of a proper democratic life. Secularists, or at least some of them, in turn, argue that only public reasons ought to be used in democratic deliberations if democracy wishes to remain faithful to its mission. At the same time, a growing concern over the erosion of civil culture has 
rising, both in America and in Europe. Many scholars indicate secularization as one of the causes of the weakening of the decline of civic culture. Whereas some scholars argue that if you want to see the rebirth of civic culture, what you need are just political and social measures. Others say that what you need is a religion, is a religion that helps this project. Now, this conference is a forum. is a forum for American and European scholars to explore together the role of civic religion in democratic countries. And I honestly believe that this discussion between American and European scholars will provide precious insights on one of the most important issues of our time, perhaps, and I'm using the word cautious with uh, the awareness of its importance, perhaps one of the most dramatic issues of our time. But I also believe that this exchange, this discussion between American and European scholars is long overdue. And our conference should be the first step, not the last one, the first step. And this is not time for intellectual arrogance. Really is not. Americans can learn from Europe, and Europeans can learn from Americans. We must listen to each other. But I have already taken too much of your time, and I wish to turn the chair to my distinguished colleague and friend, Professor Harold James. Thank you. Hey, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It's, uh, it's a great pleasure for me to uh, to welcome you and also to thank uh, Maurizio and uh, Robert George for putting on this wonderful conference and this very interesting uh, theme. Uh, the session this afternoon begins with Europe and then the sessions tomorrow deal primarily with the United States. And obviously the hope is that we will get a dialogue between the two sides of the Atlantic and see whether they're really as far apart from each other as some people think that they are. Um, in the first of this afternoon's sessions, uh, there are two uh, presentations. Uh, the first presentation on Germany is given by Professor Christoph Cornelissen uh, from the University of Kiel in Germany. Um, he's a distinguished student of German historiography. He's written a wonderful biography of the great German historian Gerhard Ritter, and he's also written extensively on history and memory, not only in Germany, but also in Central Europe. He's worked a lot with Czechs and Slovaks on the different approaches to, uh, to memory. Uh, the second presentation uh, was to have been given uh, by Professor Olivier Eel from Paris, um, but Professor Eel is unable to be here. And uh, what's happened instead is that we're very, very delighted with this. Um, uh, Russell Neely from our own Department of Politics um, is going to present both the original ideas of the paper and also, as I understand it, some critique of those ideas. 
Um, so, a, a, a lot of critique. Um, so, this is kind of uh, uh, self-criticism. Um, so, we're going to begin with a paper that doesn't have any self-criticism. From, or maybe it does. Um, uh, from Professor Cornelison. Thank you. Yes, uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, thank you very much, first of all, uh, to Harold James for your very kind, overkind introduction of my own person. And secondly, thank you very much to Maurizio Biroli for bringing together this forum between European and American scholars. Uh, as we weren't told what we were going to talk about, uh, not exactly at least what we were going to talk about, we had to decide on it all ourselves, and I'm not absolutely sure whether what I'm going to talk about will be exactly what you're expecting me to talk about, but we will see to that afterwards. I will have a look at the German case over the past two centuries. And I will begin with a quotation by a law scholar and German judge who is called Ernst Wolfgang Böckenförde. He was a judge at the Constitutional Court in Karlsruhe, and more than 30 years ago, he formulated a very important insight. And I quote, the insight that the liberal and secular state was dependent on conditions that it cannot guarantee itself without questioning its liberty, unquote. In doing so, Böckenförde addressed an issue of fundamental importance. This related to the existence, the manifestations, and practices of civic religion not only in Germany but also to other parts in this world. This is the case as all those who are concerned with the history and the present of civic religions wonder how the liberty of the modern state can be ensured within the framework of increasingly global politics and fundamental changes in many different societies, and this pertains also to the German society, of course. In any case, this certainly applies to the basic understanding of a conservative liberal approach, which is currently dominating the relevant discussions in my country. Apart from the previously mentioned law scholar Böckenförde and several others, the philosopher Hermann Lübbe can be regarded as one of the most eminent figures in the German debates. Hermann Lübbe perceives the concept of civic religion as being the necessity of a minimum consensus concerning the mentality of coexistence. To summarize, Lübe defines civic religion as a collection of meta-denominational religious convictions aimed at securing the coherence of a political system. He argues that especially for the reason that pluralism in society and its cor corresponding principle, uh, principle diversity of values are increasing, the question as to whether new political systems do not necessitate fundamental sociopolitical practices to safeguard their coherence and acceptance become more and more pressing. Regardless of these fundamental considerations, it also needs to be said that the notion of civic religion has not yet become a universally accepted concept in German scientific debate. On the contrary, both the term and the concept have remained controversial to this present day. The delayed adoption of the American discussion was at first restricted to the fields of political science and philosophy, whereas historians in Germany were and still are mostly dismissive. 
This might be a consequence of a specific discipline related, or in other words, methodologically conservative tradition in comparison to the heavily Americanized studies of political science in Germany. In the historian's defense, however, it might be added that the previous iconographical research had already advanced the thesis that all states, regardless of their concrete political organization, were in need of symbolic science that offered their members the ability to visualize and experience them. But the reluctance of historians and academics from other fields in Germany to make use of the concept of civic religion also points to another important factor. In the end, the delay and partial absence of the adoption of the corresponding American discussions is linked to the lack of the necessary historic preconditions in Germany. In other words, in contrast to the United States and partially also to France, German history of the 19th and 20th centuries is not related to the existence of an institutionally stable and traditionally rich democracy. Instead of stability, political turning points, and in some case, funda cases, fundamental, fundamental breaks mark the course of German history. It therefore comes as no surprise that, especially at the level of civic religious practices, German history over the last century is characterized by an enormous consumption of national political symbols and the frequent changes of national days of remembrance. Basically, the political and social contro controversy about these questions had already begun directly after the first national feast on the 15th of October, 1814, when the, anniversary, when the anniversary of the Battle of the Nations at Leipzig was commemorated throughout Germany. But even after the foundation of the first German national state in the year of 1871, the severe political conflicts about flags, hymns, and national days of remembrance to represent the new polity continued. Almost regularly, the political discourse also showed a specific German insecurity, which can be traced through diverse facets to the present of a reunified Germany. Some critics of the concept of civic religions therefore argued that neither in Germany's history nor the present could one speak of a civic religion at all. So the argument goes that in a secular constitutional state diametrically opposed to a system sanctified by religious truth, there cannot and must not exist any civic religion as a matter of principle. Nevertheless, and Maurizio has already mentioned this, it would be a mistake to regard the existence of a civic religion as a purely American phenomenon, since the analysis of such rituals and discourses show that quite similar phenomena exist in Germany also. And the following, I will try to expand on this topic by focusing on the civic religious traits rather than structures or belief systems in the political discourse of selected German statesmen. This will follow from 1870 in chronological order. At the center of interest are the celebrations on the occasions of the changing national days of remembrance. It needs to be stated clearly that this approach does not say too much about the success of these memorial services. In terms of chronology, my distinction is twofold. The first phase spans the period from 1871 to 1945 when religious and civil religious confessions of the ruling elites in the German Empire were primarily based on the unstable foundation of a nation state 
regarded as Protestant and authoritarian at the same time. The second part will deal with the difficulties of a reformulation of a civic religion in the two Germanys against the background of total catastrophe and national ruin after 1945. Let's have a look at the first phase. The German Empire, existing since 1870, was the result of a series of wars, annexations and unions that made the predominantly Protestant state of Prussia the biggest and most powerful state in the Confederation of Germany. As the political, military and dynastic constellation challenged the legitimacy of Prussia's claim to power, it seemed promising to politically strengthen the newly achieved unity with national feasts and religious practicing, practices honoring the House of Hohenzollern. Taking a deeper look at the beginnings of the German Empire, however, the conflict between national monarchical and national democratic ideas rise to surface. In this context, it is also worth noticing that despite all exultation about the achieved national unity, public perception of the Franco-German War was initially shaped by the factors of sin and repentance. According to the ideas of Pastor Friedrich Bodelschwing, even days of repentance were introduced in especially the Sedan Day, which was to become celebrated emphatically later on, was intended to be such a day of repentance. The tradition of celebrating national feasts in a spirit of civic opposition, though, as well as the day of repentance, the reaction to which had been reserved anyway, came to an end relatively soon after the foundation of the German Empire. From this time, these were replaced by national feasts of a monarchical, dynastic tradition, especially under the rule of William II. When an escalating style of representation on the occasion of the emperor's birthdays became typical of the courtly self-image and the political views of the German Empire's ruling elites. In relation to our topic, the emergence and gradual implementation of a marked history and provident theology is of central importance as it progressively replaced the civil political discourse in the German Empire. The belief of belonging to the chosen people was widely spread among German Protestants already well before 1870, and occasionally it was said that a pact existed between the Germans and God. With regard to civil religious, or as one might be more inclined to say, military religious practices, the new position of power of the imperial crown and the unification of the Germans into a federal state made the nation absolute and sacred. The victory of 1870 thus was interpreted as the result of divine intervention, or even more influenced by Protestant national thought, the foundation of the German Empire was seen as the completion of the Reformation. The corresponding speeches of German politicians, but also historians of their time, became part of the national legend. Even though the proclamation of the emperor was not exactly a sacred ecclesiastical act, national and Protestant convictions, or in other words, the belief in the emperor, the empire, and Protestantism soon began to merge. The speeches of William I in particular made use of a hierarchical combination of these three elements with God and divine blessing or providence at the top. This was followed by Prussia and the king, whose army was intended to be an instrument of providence. In short, the grouping of God, emperor, and army became the traditional creed of the speeches given by the German emperors until 1918. 
It is, however, important to notice a fundamental change that had already become apparent in the 1880s. Now, not only the emperor was an instrument of God's will, but the whole German people. William II also made frequent references to the union of God, providence, and the army in his speeches to express his personal civil religious convictions. His speech on the 10th of May, 1896, on the occasion of the 25th anniversary of the Frankfurt Peace Treaty, illustrates this very clearly. Following William II's line of argument, God had chosen one people, namely the German people, and had given it a legitimate ruler. And just as God had chosen the king, the king had created himself an instrument, the army, to fulfill the Lord's will on earth. Not only on this occasion, but also in many other cases, William II weaved massive amounts of a kind of religious kitsch into his speeches to bridge the gap between a traditionally religiously influenced conservative ideology and a dynamic one focusing on the state's power. Exactly out of this constellation arose the core problem of the monarchical authoritarian civil religion of the German Empire. And of course, this is a bit of a, a very strange term, the monarchical authoritarian civil religion, but that is what was dominant in the German Empire until 1918. The whole system was under constant pressure to succeed in foreign politics and also to succeed militarily because in the long run, an army without victories was incompatible with the idea of divine providence. From this point of view, certain elements of the German Empire's civic religion were markedly prone to contingency. Finally, after World War I had given an enormous impetus to the secularization of politics, as well as to the less mentioned reverse process of nationalization of religion, the problematic nature of the relationship became, became apparent. Additionally, it must not be overlooked that the civil religious celebrations until 1918 were, for, were first and foremost events of the bourgeoisie loyal to the emperor, whereas the working class at the same time had a culture of feasting independently, which was conscious opposition to the existing political system. This adversarial role of the political left remained characteristic also throughout the Weimar Republic. Even though the Social Democratic Party became one of the major pillars of the Republic, which was newly founded in 1919, as the existing political milieus remained intact until the end of the Republic in 1933, the political system was notoriously unstable as long as the Weimar Republic existed. Among others, one characteristic feature of this instability was the inability of the political parties in Parliament to agree on a legal national holiday. Attempts to make the 9th of November, the day of the Republic's proclamation, a public holiday were frustrated by the resistance of the bourgeois parties. As an alternative, in 1921, it was attempted to publicly celebrate the 11th of August, the day the Constitution had come into force. During the preparations for the introduction of the Constitution Day, Chancellor Josef Wirth elaborated that it was the explicit aim of the government not to let the purely dismissive anti-democratic forces in Germany shape public life, but to, quote, to cultivate the moral and intellectual contents of politics and to lay claim to them, unquote, in order to embody in the citizens a public avowal of the republic. In reality, however, the celebrations only took place on a very small scale. And instead of reaching a minimum political consensus, 
among those involved, about common political core values, the exact opposite was soon the case. Even during the politically more peaceful periods of the Weimar Republic, the bourgeois conservative forces tried to play down the importance of the Constitution Day. Instead of celebrating the Constitution, so they argued, it would be better to commemorate the day of the foundation of the German Empire in 1870 and the outbreak of the First World War. Thus, they obviously undermined the civil democratic message of the Constitution Day. All in all, national holidays remained an emotionally fiercely contested issue during the whole Weimar Republic. And this may be a point for our discussion later on and for our conference, whether civil or the discussion about civil religious core values might not engender exactly what we don't want to do when you start such a discussion. The Weimar Republic would be a case for that. Parallel to this unsolved question of a suitable national flag, the disputes weighed heavily on the Republic's political culture. Until the breakup of the Weimar Republic, it was not successfully accomplished to make use of national holidays to effectively embody a Republican, in other words, a civil religious tradition in the consciousness of the wider population. All the more, the military defeat of 1918 had provoked an extreme crisis of identity in Germany, especially among the Protestant population, because it had suddenly interrupted the meta-narrative, which was dominant in the years before the First World War, of the former civil religious discourse, according to which Germany had undergone an unstoppable rise. After 1918, this gave way to the experience of what most regarded as an undeserved catastrophe. Hitler and his movement were able to establish a connection to exactly this mood of crisis. Following the rise to power of the National Socialists, the public political ritual was finally subordinated to pure propagandistic purposes. While the 1st of May, the so-called Hero Remembrance Day, and, the Harvest Day, the, and uh, the Harvest Day, the regime established three public holidays, which although being linked to existing traditions, were used to propagate National Socialist ideology and were gradually perverted. Additionally, a sophisticated crowd psychology was utilized since 1933 on a so far unknown scale. Surely it is inappropriate to use the term of civic or civil religion at all in view of the totalitarian reorganization of the political system between 1933 and 1945. It is not by chance, therefore, that historians have preferred to refer to the concept of a political religion for describing these phenomena. In particular, for example, the Italian historian Emilio Gentile or in Germany the political scientist Hans Meyer have supported the view that sacralization of politics by means of political religion and well-prepared liturgies are basic characteristics of totalitarian regimes. Their claims, however, have not remained unchallenged. Nevertheless, there can be no doubt that the ceremonial organization of national socialist celebrations had a pronounced effect on both spectators and even on more remote observers, which is verified by many contemporary witnesses. The Nuremberg Party conferences almost caused a sort of mystical ecstasy or a kind of holy mania among the participants, as was witnessed, for example, by the French ambassador in Berlin, François Poncet. Consequently, it can be said that the national socialist forms of celebration achieved quasi-religious effects. Furthermore, 
Hitler's rhetoric built on semantics that had, over several decades, erased the boundaries between religious and political statements. Thus, the Führer regularly made use of terms that carried religious connotations. Destiny, struggle, or even much more evocative, the term Reich, which could be understood as realm, empire, or kingdom, may be mentioned in this connection. Taken together, these terms could evoke a downright magical power. The massive impact of the National Socialist cult, however, was founded on a combination of religious terminology with Christian iconography, as well as a mixture of traditional military parades and older forms of patriotic feasts. In addition, modern light and sound techniques created the audience's impression of Hitler as a high priest heading a new religious movement when he spoke at the Nuremberg Party conferences or elsewhere, which was exactly the intention of Hitler himself and many of his aides. When the catastrophic consequences of all nationalistic traditions since the day of Emperor William II and their combination with the ideology of Aryan blood and soil mythology became increasingly apparent to the contemporaries, this destroyed the faith of most Germans in the benefits of political rituals as such. In 1945, hardly anybody was willing to permit the state and its organizations to foster any more such an ideology. Remoteness to the state, remoteness to the state of, on the part of the German population began to replace the former idolization as the main criterion of civic religion in Germany after 1945. I have now reached my second phase, which will deal exactly with this period. Inevitably, the downfall of the German Empire, the end of the German Reich, also led to the end of the civic religious practices of the former faces. Nevertheless, at an early stage, when drafting the Constitution, numerous attempts were made in western parts of occupied Germany to include rudiments of a transcendent system of values in the new political system. This was attempted by going back to traditions of western civilization, the discussion on the so-called Abendland in Germany. Classic examples of this were the attempts of Catholic representatives in the debates concerning the constitution of the Federal Republic of Germany to include religious formula in the first article of the Basic Law and to have a Christian cross on the black, red and gold background on the federal flag. Yet a coalition of Protestants and Social Democrats plus the first federal president, Theodor Heuss, who was personally critical of religion, prevented such a strong emphasis on Christianity in order to safeguard the religious freedom enshrined in the constitutional law. Since its foundation, the Federal Republic of Germany regards itself as being ideologically neutral and all political representatives continue to publicly support this basic attitude on official occasions. The speeches of West German politicians did and still do manifest an almost anxious attempt to avoid explicit theological or religious references. Political figureheads are determined not to take the risk of being accused of resorting to divine legitimization, as was frequently the case in earlier periods of German history. Of course, on special occasion, occasions, such as with Christmas and New Year speeches, the name of God, the petition for God's blessing and similar religious references feature in the speeches held. As a matter of fact, 
especially since the 1990s, formulaic expressions pointing to the gratitude vis-à-vis -vis history, which may be God in the background, can repeatedly be found in speeches and may be interpreted as a rudimentary element of a new kind of civic religion in the new Germany. I would suggest, though, that apart from these more or less formulaic expressions, the speeches held on the occasions of West Germany's public holidays between 1949 and 89 are more interesting and revealing. In comparison with the practices coming in neighboring European countries, a number of basic features are quite different. German speeches are marked by a serious deficit of officially imposed sensuousness, or perhaps we would say a deficit of visual imagery. While in the German Democratic Republic, monolithic and even martially sounding elements feature prominently in the communists' calendar of public holidays, modesty with regard to official ceremonies remained the essential criterion of the state's public self-display in West Germany. This was meant to signal to both German and other nations that the West German state, was only, uh, that the West German state only wanted to make rather limited use of days of remembrance and public holidays to foster the citizens' political integration. Furthermore, this ceremonial U-turn was designed to mark a radical break with the excessive use of state pomp during the Nazi era and its policy of racial exclusion. Despite this modesty, civil religious components and fragments linked to earlier ideologies in the speeches of West German politicians must not be overlooked. Examples for, this examples for this are provided by the regular, regular official ceremonies on the 20th of July every year, the day of the assassination attempt on Adolf Hitler, on the 17th of June, the day of the workers' uprising in the GDR, and on the 8th of May, when the end of the Second World War was commemorated. On these days, West German politicians showed a marked tendency to moralize and to ethicize in their speeches thus covering the events of the war and also the German war crimes in a thick rhetorical layer. Basically, the Holocaust was hardly mentioned or completely left out in most West German speeches, until, at least until the, well into the 70s. Furthermore, it is striking that the commemoration of the assassination attempt on Hitler and the workers' uprising in East Germany were quickly, quickly used as a political instrument to provide a new focal point for the divided German nation to preserve a common feeling of national identity. At the same time, however, large sections of West Germany's population proved to be less and less interested in these celebrations, and the official part mostly turned into a fixed ritual. For this reason, compared to the situation in France on the 14th of July, it is out of the question to speak of an actively practiced, or at least a perceived civic religion in West Germany until 1989. In fact, these constellations have proved or have often provoked stylistic uncertainties and even scandals. Moreover, the frequently recurring debates on the interpretations of the 8th of May clearly shows that no consensus has been reached in this respect. On the contrary, the official understanding of the end of the Second World War changed radically over the time, and this in contrast to the sharp protest of the generation that had lived through the war. Gradually, the official interpretation of the 8th of May transformed from a day of catastrophe to a day of liberation in public speeches. Since the beginning of the Social Liberal Coalition in 1969, the emphasis had shifted towards liberation. 
Liberation now meant the liberation from war, murder, and barbarism. This was exactly the content of a speech held by Federal President Walter Scheel on the 6th of May, 1975, when he explicitly pointed out that the German catastrophe had not begun in 1945, but rather in 1933. Admittedly, the new interpretation was not only the result of decisions taken by the new government. It was also the consequence of a piecemeal westernization process in the Federal Republic and the beginning of a modern mass culture also. Again, the changing social and ethnic structures of West German society also played important roles in this process. Parallel to the mostly official discourses on commemoration days or national holidays, a wide-ranging political and social discussion was sparked in the Federal Republic during the 1960s, which can effectively be put forward as the main characteristic for the existence of a civic religion in Germany up to until 1989. For quite some time, this discussion has been subsumed under the term constitutional patriotism. This terminology was coined by Dolf Sternberger as late as 1979, but the phenomenon can be traced back as far, as far as the 1960s. In short, advocates of constitutional patriotism have declared the defense, the recognition, and the claim to the Constitution as the core element and the core elements of federal Republican civil religion. Jürgen Habermas has put forward an even more accentuated model. He claims that West German constitutional patriotism consciously, states, consciously stands out Really four minutes. Uh, he claims that West German constitutional patriotism consciously stands out against the national state of a traditional character. According to Habermas, people adhering to the principle of constitutional patriotism regard themselves as citizens, but no more as members of a common German nation. Therefore, the Federal Republic, as Habermas put it, could be redefined as a post-national unity and at the same time be liberated from the older and meanwhile overcome traditions. This definition went along with a kind of a transcendental positioning of the German basic law, which can be classified as the most important feature of federal Republican civic religion since the 1960s. It is probably not accidental that this process started as the political and economic success of the new German democracy began to materialize and impact on the consciousness of the West German population. But also regarded as a fixed axiom of the new political national West German democracy until 1989 has been seen in a quite different light since the 1990s. And I will come to an end now. A new situation has emerged since the unification of what used to be two German states. The new German state acting more nationally again and being defined in more national ways by members of the German political elites has a new calendar of public holidays which is symptomatic of the change that has taken place. Annually, on the 3rd of October, the reinstitution of Germany's political and administrative unification is commemorated, though it is striking to observe the possibly typical German inability to cheerfully celebrate. <laughs> this may be right or wrong. It's up to you to decide on this. The majority of the population does not support the Schirmanis held on this occasion. As a matter of fact, they are not even noticed. But it is important that in contrast to the first post-war decades, public commemoration of the victims of National Socialism has a set place in the calendar of commemoration of the new federal German Republic. In this respect, 
the Second Federal Republic, as we might call it, sees itself as an agency of a primarily national, critical historical and memorial culture. The recently opened monument in remembrance of the victims of the Holocaust in Berlin can be regarded as the epitome of this new civic religion. And I think I might simply end, end here and uh, thank you very much for your attention so far. Stay here. As it was explained, I'm sort of a, a last-minute pinch uh, hitter uh, here. Uh, originally, uh, Professor uh, Eo, uh, can, can you? How's that? Okay. Uh, no feedback. Okay, good. Uh, I'm a last-minute uh, pinch hitter uh, here, and. Uh, I was asked to uh, comment uh, on civil religion in uh, France, and uh, I want, since I know a whole lot more about uh, civil religion in the United States, and since Professor Eel in his paper does a good deal of comparing and contrasting of uh, the two types uh, of uh, attitudes towards uh, religion in France and in the United States, I'm going to do the same uh, thing here. Uh, I'll, I'll tip my hand beforehand and say that I'm highly critical of developments that uh, uh, have gone on in France, at least uh, insofar as I'm able to see them as an outsider. And indeed, I'm going to be engaged in uh, French bashing. I want uh, those of you, however, who are much more sympathetic and perhaps much more understanding and knowledgeable of the French situation to, to set me straight in the question and answer uh, period and tell me why uh, I've missed it. And uh, please, uh, I, I would be most appreciative for any of you uh, who uh, disabuse me of uh, some of the views that I've formed of recent uh, policies uh, in France. And I'm going to focus particularly on uh, the headscarf uh, issue. And uh, those of you who have uh, strong uh, views on this uh, that are perhaps uh, wiser and more informed uh, than my own, uh, please, uh, I want you to speak at uh, length and, and change my mind here. Okay, let me begin, first of all, uh, with uh, Professor Eel's uh, paper here on civil religion in France. It's as much, actually, on civil religion in the United States and its absence uh, in uh, France. Uh, basically, uh, he says that there clearly is a civil religion uh, in the United States, and he uh, adopts, essentially, the uh, form uh, of analysis that uh, appeared in a very famous article in 1967, um, uh, by a, uh, a distinguished sociologist of religion named Robert Bella. Bella wrote uh, this article uh, in a journal called Daedalus uh, that uh, really caught on among social scientists and uh, others, uh, explaining that the United States clearly has a, uh, a civil religion that consists of uh, such things as the veneration for the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and Memorial Day uh, parades. And uh, I'll get into uh, uh, Bella's uh, article uh, shortly, but... Uh, Professor Eel, in his paper, basically uh, adopts uh, Bella's uh, view that there really is a civil religion in America and that it's really important and that it serves the function of uh, reinforcing many of the principles of American government, particularly as uh, stated in the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and uh, the Declaration of uh, Independence. And uh, he gives us uh, an example of this. Uh, the uh, bicentenary uh, celebration uh, in 1976 of uh, the Constitution uh, when President uh, Ford uh, celebrated uh, this occasion. He writes here, on July 2nd, President Ford, referring to the text of the Declaration of Independence, invited all Americans to pledge their loyalty to it on their honor. 
In the same way, to symbolize the solidarity of the Union, all the bells in the country started to peal simultaneously for two minutes, symbolically saluting two centuries of freedom. The same applied during the second bicentenary in 1987. That, of course, was celebrating uh, the Constitution. The president stood on the steps of Capitol Hill to recite the constitutional oath, a declaration placed under the auspices of a god who, without being one of the specific uh, uh, religious confession, is supposed to unite all Americans under a common faith. Ah, okay. And uh, I, I clearly agree with uh, what Professor Eel is saying here, that there is a, a civil religion of this uh, kind uh, in the United States. Uh, Gunnar Merdal, in his uh, famous uh, book in 1944 on uh, the problem of, uh, of segregation in uh, the Jim Crow South, spoke of an American creed, and uh, many uh, scholars have uh, taken up uh, that uh, idea, and uh, the creed consists of such uh, principles as that all men are created equal, they are endowed by their creator with uh, unalienable rights, uh, and uh, this creed uh, comes not only from uh, the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights, but also from uh, the biblical uh, tradition. As far as France is concerned, Professor Eel uh, sees uh, civil religion as uh, having been in decline, at least since the time of the, uh, the revolution. There's a certain suspiciousness uh, of, uh, of civil uh, religion uh, in France, uh, part uh, perhaps uh, due to some of the excesses uh, of the, uh, the revolutionary uh, period, but to the extent that there is a civil religion in France uh, anyway, it isn't nearly as well developed uh, or as uh, influential uh, in uh, his comparison, at least as I, uh, I read it, uh, as that in the United States. And I fully uh, agree with that. And uh, it's at least consistent with uh, my own uh, observations of both uh, France uh, and the United States. Uh, to take up the French uh, situation, let me begin first of all uh, with uh, the uh, perhaps most uh, influential uh, text regarding uh, civil religion, namely uh, Rousseau's social contract. In the penultimate chapter of uh, Rousseau's uh, work, uh, he uh, takes up the issue of the relationship between uh, a, uh, a Republican political order uh, and, uh, and religion. And he puts forth uh, a view uh, there that there's a need for some kind of minimal uh, religious uh, content to a civil religion that all people who are part uh, and, uh, of a, uh, a Republican uh, order are expected uh, to adhere to. And he says, the dogmas of the civil religion ought to be simple, few in number, stated with precision and without explanation or commentaries. And they, he goes and lists uh, what uh, these uh, simple dogmas uh, should be. One, the existence of the deity who is powerful, intelligent, beneficent, prescient, and provident. Uh, also then that the life to come, you must uh, believe that there's going to be some kind of afterlife. The happiness of the just, the punishment of the wicked, the sanctity of the social contract and of the laws. Okay, that's a necessary civil religion, according to Rousseau, if you're going to have a, uh, a patriotic uh, Republican uh, polity that is stable and that people uh, adhere to with a certain uh, level of uh, emotional uh, engagement and commitment. I said, these are the positive dogmas. As for the negative dogmas, I limit them to only one. That is intolerance. It belongs to the creeds which we have excluded. Okay, so you can't have any creed that is uh, intolerant uh, of other creeds and doesn't want to allow other people to uh, worship 
uh, God as they see it. Rousseau, however, is really himself hostile uh, to uh, several different types of religion. Even though he believed they should be allowed uh, to be practiced, his intention was to create a form of patriotic republicanism, one based, I think, more on a kind of patriotic deism than on Christianity. And he, in, in the earlier part of the section on civil religion, the social contract, he describes three kinds of religion, uh, religions, each of which he thinks is not good uh, for the health of a, uh, a Republican uh, type of, of government. And he was really trying to, I think, recreate something like the patriotism of a Greek city-state. He begins, he speaks, first of all, of the ancient pagan religion where the, the, the gods were instituted by the state and people uh, did their uh, duties uh, in regard to uh, the polity as if they were divine obligations. He has certain sympathy for that type of uh, ancient uh, paganism, uh, but at the same time, he thinks it tends to uh, lead uh, to superstition and sometimes cruelty. He liked the idea, though, of there being a very close association uh, between uh, religious feelings and feelings of religious obligations and one's uh, sense of obligations to obey the law and to obey uh, or to do what is necessary in terms of one's uh, patriotic uh, duty. So I think of the three religions he discusses, all of which he rejects, uh, the ancient paganism is probably the one uh, that he had the greatest sympathy for. And he also takes up what we might call uh, pietistic Christianity, what he thinks uh, is really true Christianity, Christianity of the Gospels, a Christianity uh, that uh, is in uh, uh, many ways admirable, as he sees it, on a personal level, uh, but one which he thinks tends uh, to undermine uh, the type of uh, emotional feelings that one needs to be a good Republican uh, patriot. He says, there remains then the religion of man or Christianity, not that of today, but that of the gospel. He's speaking here of this sort of Protestant understanding of returning to the purity of the uh, original uh, Christianity. He says, by this holy, sublime, and pure religion, men, children of the same God, all recognize one another as brethren, and the social bond which unites them is not dissolved even in death. Uh, although he has clearly uh, some uh, admiration for this type of what I'm calling pietistic Christianity, uh, this religion, uh, he goes on, uh, is, is, is not very good in terms of instilling patriotism or love of country and the sorts of, uh, of, of attitudes and values that are needed to maintain the kind of patriotic republic that he hopes to uh, create. And uh, he says... Uh, far from attaching the hearts of citizens to the state, this form of Christianity detaches the, uh, men from it and from all earthly things. I know of nothing more contrary to the social spirit. And his argument is basically that, well, this form of primitive pietistic Christianity is, you know, spiritually it's very nice, but people uh, become more concerned with their, the fate of their soul than an afterlife. They're not so concerned about what the state is doing, and they're certainly not uh, interested in pursuing glory. They might actually be brave in battle because they don't care so much if they die. It's not so important. What's important is the state of their uh, soul, but they don't make really good soldiers. 
And he makes an argument against this form of, of Christianity that's very similar to Machiavelli in the discourses, that, you know, our religion, it encourages humility uh, and self-sacrifice and willingness to suffer, uh, but this really isn't good if you want a strong, patriotic, uh, militarily uh, robust uh, form of, uh, of, of uh, polity, of, uh, uh, of uh, a state. And so... Rousseau rejects uh, that uh, form of religion as well. And finally, the worst form of religion, as far as he's concerned, uh, and as far as his uh, project of creating a uh, civic republicanism is concerned, is the sort of religion represented by Roman Catholicism, which uh, he believes uh, divides people in terms of their loyalties. They, uh, you have priests and the church on one side, and you have the, uh, the prince or the state officials on the other. And this kind of divided loyalty uh, can only uh, create uh, turmoil within people and weakness within, uh, within the state. So Rousseau rejects uh, that kind of, uh, of religion as well. He had certain admiration for uh, Islam in its original form because it united uh, the, the, the church and the state. He realized that's no longer possible. So he's hoping really, I think, for a kind uh, of what I'm calling here uh, uh, patriotic deism or republican uh, deism. And uh, I mentioned, I take up Rousseau here because I think a lot of his thinking about religion and the potential harm of religion to the state was taken over by the French revolutionary thinkers. And I would describe today uh, France as caught essentially in a Rousseauistic Jacobin time warp regarding religion. Uh, one which is or tends to be anti-Christian, anti-Catholic, anti-organized religion, and anti-clerical. And I would argue that it has become increasingly dysfunctional in a France that has taken in literally millions of third world immigrants, uh, many of whom are very religious and for whom religion is very central in their lives. And they, uh, I'm going to argue that uh, the, the, the French have not done well in, ter in, in terms of trying to harmonize the sincere and uh, passionate religious feelings and beliefs of many of its immigrant population uh, with the French uh, state. It has needlessly adopted, I think, an attitude of hostility towards certain types of uh, organized uh, religion uh, under this banner of laicite, of, uh, of secularism. Uh, let me get into the headscarf issue uh, now. For those of you who don't know, for the last 15 years, there has been uh, a battle going on about whether or not Muslim girls in high school and junior high schools uh, should be allowed to wear uh, headscarves. Uh, many uh, Muslims, uh, Islam, uh, like uh, Orthodox Judaism and uh, many forms of uh, Christianity, places a great emphasis uh, on uh, feminine modesty, feminine chastity, and a headscarf is seen as sort of a symbol uh, of, uh, of that modesty and chastity. It's both a sort of a religious symbol, but it's also a, a moral statement. It's, it's, it's saying, you know, I'm a chaste woman, I don't accept the sexual revolution, uh, men, if you're sexually interested in me, stay away unless you're going to marry me. All of these sort of uh, images and symbols come into uh, the headscarf uh, issue. Uh, for many people on the left and feminists, uh, it's seen as a symbol of 
the degradation and subordination of, uh, of women. And there's a conflict of just what the headscarf means, with one side saying, well, it's a very bad thing. Uh, it indicates uh, that uh, women uh, are subordinate to men and uh, that they're being bullied by their uh, husbands and uh, by their uh, mullahs uh, or, or religious leaders. Uh, other groups uh, see it very differently, and they see it as an assertion uh, of a very wholesome kind of, uh, of, mora- of traditional morality and traditional uh, religion. Most of the French public, however, are viscerally, viscerally opposed to the wearing of uh, headscarves. They're viscerally opposed even to things like yarmulkes and other sorts of uh, displays of religious symbols uh, in the public schools. And uh, the French parliament, both houses of the French parliament, passed uh, two years ago uh, by majorities of greater than 13 to 1 an anti-headscarf law and an anti-yarmulke law, a law which prohibits students in the public school system from any use of any kind of uh, religious ornament or religious display. Specifically, it's headscarves, yarmulkes, uh, and uh, crosses on, uh, on chains uh, here. And it was overwhelmingly uh, popular with uh, the French uh, public. The commission that uh, studied the issue uh, recommended a headscarf ban uh, by a vote of 19 to 1. And as I said, in both houses of the parliament, it passed by majorities of greater than 13 to 1. This, uh, let me read uh, a BBC uh, commentator, a woman, Carolyn uh, Wyatt, who uh, lives in, uh, in Paris. And this really gives you a flavor of how a lot of the French public, not just the French elite, but uh, the, the French rank and file, people who aren't uh, what we would think of as leftist uh, or secularist intellectuals. This is how they... Uh, I think, view this issue. Uh, Carolyn Wyatt for the BBC writes, she says, I was sitting in a cafe with a friend, Antoine, soon after I had arrived in Paris this June. It was a glorious uh, uh, sunny summer's evening, and we sat outdoors to watch the world go by. I live in Marais, a a gay, uh, homosexual, and very touristy area full of young men sauntering past in search of a good night out. Two men in tight T-shirts showing bulging biceps walked past hand in hand, occasionally stopping to kiss one another affectionately. That's disgusting, exclaimed Antoine, a middle-aged, rather conventional French businessman. What, the two men, I asked? No, no, not them, behind them, the two women. I looked, but I couldn't see anything amiss. All I saw were two young women walking past, chatting to one another. I turned to Antoine, mystified. The veils, he explained. Veils, I asked. Yes, those headscarves, he said. That shouldn't be allowed here in France. I was utterly baffled. Very un-French, he said. (laughs) Antoine spent the next half hour explaining to me why why he and most of his friends were horrified by the sight of the women wearing what the French call the veil and others might call the hijab or Islamic headscarf. It was degrading to women, he told me, and few of the women wearing it did so voluntarily. They were forced, he said, by their families and by the local imams who were teaching an increasingly fundamentalist form of Islam to France's Muslim community. That was never a problem with the first generation of Muslim immigrants in France, the Algerians and Moroccans, who came and settled here in the 60s and 70s. They just wanted to fit in, Antoine told me. Explained that it was the second and third generation of French-born Muslims, many of whom live in the big city suburbs, effectively ghettos, who seemed to him increasingly un-French. 
He said they were rejecting French values and French culture and identifying themselves with their co-religionists in other countries instead, even insisting on wearing the headscarf to school. Muslim girls were clearly being oppressed by the headscarf. It was all very dangerous and would lead to no good, Antoine said ominously. Those same thoughts were echoed rather more elegantly by the French president, Chirac, as he announced to an appreciative audience that all religious symbols would be banned from French state schools. He cited liberty, equality, fraternity, and the need to keep France a secular state. Yet everyone here knows that the ruling isn't really about the wearing of a small cross on a chain or even a Jewish skullcap. It is about the headscarf and the visceral, visceral, almost incoherent rage it induces in even the most liberal of French. But is that racism or fear of the other? Is it the fear of someone else's value slowly turning France into something more multicultural? I can't make up my mind. And the French Muslim women I've spoken to all have radically differing views. Let me try to explain here, as far as I can understand, and I say uh, some of you understand this better than me, please set me straight in the question and answer period, just why the French uh, look uh, upon displays of religious uh, symbols in such a hostile way uh, that is not found in uh, almost any other European country and certainly not uh, in, uh, in the United States. I mean, uh, women can wear headscarves in Germany in, in the schools, in, in, in Italy, uh, throughout most of uh, maybe Turkey, I think they can't because they have a, a, an anti, uh, the, the Ataturk uh, uh, legacy there. But the French, the way I understand it and the way knowledgeable French people have uh, explained it is that uh, the, the French policy of laicite, of secularism, really developed in the 19th century as a struggle against Roman Catholic uh, influences in France. And the Catholic Church was seen as anti-Republican, anti-democratic, monarchic, and as having too much influence in France and needed to be uh, put in its uh, place. And particularly, the French had to create an education system, a public education system, that was not dominated by Roman Catholicism and its anti-Republican, monarchic type uh, of, uh, of thinking. So they set up a public school system uh, in, uh, in the 19th century. Uh, they banned any sort of uh, religious displays or any kind of religious teaching in that uh, public uh, school system. And they saw themselves as having an obligation to uh, protect people against the pressures of Catholicism and the pressures of religion, which, as again, as I see, they say, they, they tended to see as anti-democratic, anti-republican. Uh, Here, one scholar explains it this way. Although many commentators point to the French Revolution as a period that gave birth to civic and secular identity in France, the sustained and victorious battle over religious influence actually took place a century later. In the 1880s, when a stable French democracy took root, the government sought to supplant the Catholic Church in providing education to French children. Religion was removed from the public school curriculum. This school war was thought necessary in order to lessen the political and social influence of the church, which Republicans saw as a threat to democracy itself. They worried particularly about the power that monarchical priests seemed to have over women, a claim that was used to justify denying French women the vote in 1944. All invoke the idea of laicite or secularism in the school as a fundamental, of a, a fundamental importance to the very survival of French democracy. They present the growth of Muslim influence in France they, uh, uh, today as a revival of the perceived Catholic threat to the nation a century ago. So they tend to see the, the current uh, influx of Muslims through the lens of the struggle in the 19th century to reduce the influence of the anti-democratic Catholic church. 
The girls who wear headscarves like Catholic women at the turn of the century are seen as mere pawns in the hands of a fanatical clergy. The invocatory power of these apparent historical parallels explains why the debate about Muslim assimilation in France is being held over what might appear to outsiders as a minor issue, what adolescent girls wear at a school. And the scholar goes on to explain uh, the rather ironic development that a number of Muslim uh, parents or, or Muslim uh, girls who want to wear headscarves have exited the French public school system and have enrolled in the private Catholic school system where they are allowed to wear uh, uh, headscarves. The Catholics apparently don't find any, uh, the Catholic Church doesn't find any problem with uh, Muslim girls wearing uh, headscarves. No doubt they probably have uh, positive associations knowing that uh, they're going to stay away from all the sorts of harms that one finds in, in, uh, in secular schools. Uh, to give, I think, uh, an even better uh, uh, defense, at least, from the French point of view. I want to read uh, what one of the members of the commission, uh, the headscarf commission, Patrick Weil, had uh, to say. He explains that the decision was overwhelmingly supported, uh, the decision to ban uh, headscarves, and he uh, goes on to say that it was needed to protect the, uh, the young uh, girls from conformist religious pressures that they would get from home or from other uh, students in the school. He says, the French tradition of la cité was built against the influence, indeed domination, of the Catholic Church in public affairs. The 1904 law of separation between the church and state was a victory for the majority of French citizens educated in, in the Catholic faith who wanted the Catholic Church to be excluded from public education and influence. Uh, the law did not forbid the wearing of religious signs, but the custom in France was, and still is, to keep religious faith as a private matter. This tradition is most like, uh, likely linked in France to the long battle against the power and public exposure of the Catholic faith. In the relation between the individual, the religious group, and the state, the latter, that is, uh, the state, is both expected and seen to act as protector of the individual against group pressure. The group pressure, though, that he's talking about is really group pressure to become a, a traditionalist religious believer of some kind. They don't seem to have any problem in France uh, with allowing group pressure for people who want to uh, have their ears pierced uh, or have a tattoo uh, or uh, become Marxists, uh, but they do seem to uh, be opposed to any kind of uh, group pressure that would encourage someone to become uh, an Orthodox Jew, a traditionalist Christian, and most certainly, of course, a traditionalist uh, Muslim. Okay, I only have five minutes left. I'm not going to be able to talk too much about the United States, but uh, oh, I will say uh, more here about uh, Patrick Weil. He readily admits that while some of the girls uh, are uh, pressured uh, by their uh, parents or uh, by other students to uh, wear a headscarf, that there are many uh, who... Uh, independently want a headscarf of their, uh, to, to wear a headscarf, even in, in some cases uh, defying their more secularized parents uh, who don't want them to wear a headscarf. And uh, in a number of cases anyway, in any, anyway, a number of teenagers, is, call it adolescent rebellion or what you want, have reasserted their Muslim identity against what their parents uh, want them to wear and uh, against what they see as the corrupting uh, values of uh, secularism and the sexual revolution. He, he, he rarely admits there, he says, whereas for majority of women, the headscarf is an expression of the domination of women by men, it can also be the articulation of a free belief. 
a means of protection against the pressure of males, an expression of identity and freedom against secular parents, a statement of opposition to Western and secular society, and one that's sort of voluntarily engaged in. And uh, it, it is to his credit anyway that he acknowledges that it, it, there's something wrong about prohibiting those sorts uh, of uh, teenage uh, girls from uh, expressing uh, their, uh, their religion. Uh, what I want to say uh, in just a couple of minutes that I have left is that the United States has avoided, I think, uh, much of this and taken a, an attitude uh, towards uh, religion that is much more uh, positive. And uh, the belief, uh, which you can trace uh, back to virtually all of the uh, founding fathers, is that a free society needs people who are self-restrained. It needs people who are self-disciplined. And the major vehicle, or at least a major vehicle, that uh, is, is, is able to encourage people in their self-restraint and self-discipline uh, 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 is religion. And so religion should be encouraged. Religiosity should be encouraged. And if we had more time, I could read uh, many, many uh, quotations uh, from uh, George Washington in his uh, farewell address, uh, from Benjamin Franklin, even from Thomas Jefferson and, and John Adams. And the list goes on and on and on. And Tocqueville, uh, when he visited America, found... Uh, that the great, the genius of America and the reason why democracy in America did not lead to anarchy, and Tocqueville, of course, is coming from an aristocratic background that tended to identify democracy with anarchy. The reason why American democracy was not anarchic, according to Tocqueville, is because of the vibrant religious tradition and the fact that religion is not seen as something as uh, hostile uh, to uh, the state. And indeed, uh, there's a famous quote from Dwight Eisenhower in the early 1950s where he talks about uh, our government and uh, how important uh, and, and central uh, religion is. But he says, I don't care which one it is. We don't care which one. It's important for people to have, whether you're a Presbyterian, whether you're a Roman Catholic, whether you're an Orthodox Jew, all of the major religions in the United States, uh, insofar as they're tolerant and don't try to take over the state, which few, if any, have tried to do, are seen as having a positive effect in terms of uh, making democracy uh, less volatile and making, uh, it bringing order and discipline uh, to a free people uh, where order and discipline is so uh, important uh, here. Thank you. Well, th thank you very much for two very interesting uh, presentations. Uh, before we go into the general discussion, um, I, I wanted to, to, to make a comment to try to draw together uh, in, a, in a way the two papers and to try to point out uh, some of the issues that might, might come up. It seems to me very interesting that we're starting up uh, with this debate uh, with national case studies. We've got Germany, we've got France, we're going to hear about Italy and Spain. Um, and I think this represents something that is very particular to the European tradition, and in particular, it's a consequence, it seems to me, of the Reformation and the discussions in the Reformation in that uh, what happened, I believe, is that the idea of modern nationalism got fused with religion in exactly this period. It's clearest, you can tell that I'm speaking with an English accent, it's clearest, I think, in the English case uh, where the the evolution of an English sense of identity was very heavily linked with the struggles of the 16th century, um, the Act of Appeals, uh, which uh, was necessary for Henry VIII's divorce, 
um, is really the founding document of British sovereignty. But then it's pushed in in a way uh, celebrated by writers like John Fox in the Book of Martyrs um, that uh, the idea of a special mission, uh, what Christoph was talking about of uh, God's, in this case, God's Englishman or God in the German case, um, but uh, Christoph developed this for Germany where the 19th century and the period he's talking about is also the period when Protestant names become fantastically popular in, in Germany. So lots of young German boys, if they want to celebrate nationalism, are called Gustav or Adolf uh, for Gustavus Adolphus, the Swedish king, um, who, who, who really defended in the 17th century in the wars of religion, in the Thirty Years' War, uh, the Protestant, uh, Protestant cause. Um, and that, it seems to me, is, is true in a modified way in the French case as well, in that uh, the idea of the French state grew with a kind of Catholicism, uh, which they term Gallicanism, uh, which tried to keep religious elements of the belief, uh, but limit uh, the supranational powers uh, of the papacy. And it doesn't seem to me to be surprising uh, that uh, Russell brought in here in this context um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, because uh, Rousseau's vision, and you know, if you start off by reading the first page of the social contract, you read that it's written by Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and then he describes himself as citoyen de Genève. Um, and the model uh, of much of this is really the, the Reformation um, in Geneva and the theocracy uh, that uh, Jean Calvin um, established in the, in the 16th century. Uh, so um, this is a difference, it seems to me, with the United States, where Protestant religion is never established in the sense that it was in Geneva or in England or in Prussia, um, and consequently there's a different, uh, different way in which uh, Protestantism plays itself out. Um, one countervailing tendency to this, and it was briefly mentioned in uh, Christoph's uh, fine presentation, um, is what happens when there's a big national catastrophe, when all these ideas go wrong. Um, you see one of these moments in the period of the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars um, when people like the German uh, poet and thinker Novalis uh, write about the need for a different kind of Europe um, that's not based on these national established religions, but instead uh, is, is founded on a, on a Catholic basis. And this idea comes back very powerfully after the catastrophe of the middle of the 20th century, uh, when all the existing European nation states, the continental ones, um, are really destroyed in their self-conception because of the compromise of the existing elites with the fascist order, whether it's in, in Germany where this comes from, but in France as well um, is the story. So what happens, uh, you get a movement of people like Robert Schumann, um, like Konrad Adenauer, like Alcide de Gasperi, uh, to create a Europe um, which is explicitly and subconsciously um, based on a Catholic perception of a cross-national Europe in which uh, the identification of the state and religion in the way that it had led to such bad consequences in Germany and elsewhere um, isn't possible. What's interesting, it seems to me, historically, is why this vision of the 1950s, which was very powerful and very strong um, and is reflected in many ways in the original documents um, around the European economic community, um, gets entirely filtered out in the later years of the 20th century and how the conception um, that 
is described as uh, rightly as the French conception um, with a nation state um, is actually transferred to the European level and the, the kind of cosmopolitan Catholicism of the 1950s has largely disappeared um, from the European debate. It seems to me a great and really puzzling historical question as to why this has been the case. Uh, with that uh, brief commentary, um, I would like to, to, to open the floor uh, for a discussion. Please. Uh, please, uh, just a couple of housekeeping things. Could you identify yourselves? My name is Roy Hubby. I live here in Wonderful. I would like to respond to the invitation to add perhaps some corrective comments about the Tuvalu's on the head scarf. I speak not as a scholar, but as someone who was living in France, who's lived in France for a long time, and was living in France during the height of the controversy, followed it very closely, and discussed it extensively.
Thank you. No, I'm supposed to. Excuse me, sir. I'm just supposed to. I was asked by the organisers to summarise the questions, and if you if you if you speak for too long, it's very very difficult for me to in my feeble capacity to 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 summarise them. This was a question about the headscarf. I hope that's the summary you wanted. Thank you. you don't know how much I appreciate your remarks and uh, informing us about, uh, you know, your, your time in uh, France. And my own uh, reading of it is very similar to, your, uh, to yours, that uh, many uh, French people, and not just French uh, feminists, uh, see the headscarf as a symbol of the oppression uh, of women uh, in, uh, in Muslim countries. And a number of uh, Muslim women uh, fleeing oppression uh, from Iran and others supported the, the, the headscarf uh, ban. But you're dealing with a symbol here. It's like the American flag. I mean, some American Indians see the American flag as a symbol of uh, genocide and oppression. Uh, other people see the American flag uh, very uh, differently. And the question is, from a public policy standpoint, uh, if people uh, attack you for having a certain symbol, uh, shouldn't uh, the, uh, the attack uh, be the focus of, uh, uh, of, of prohibition and not the wearing of a symbol? I mean, it, it seems to me uh, that uh, the French uh, are uh, taking sides here in a culture uh, war, and uh, I, uh, I don't think it's wise public policy, and I think it's going to drive a lot of Muslims into the hands of the extremists. If I were an al-Qaeda organizer, I would love the fact that the French have uh, banned uh, the headscarf. I can't think of anything that uh, would, uh, you know, be more conducive to encouraging uh, political uh, extremism. Maybe we can ask uh, here, Professor, uh, from uh, Germany, uh, how differently the Germans look at this situation. The girls in Germany can wear uh, headscarves uh, all, uh, all day long. Well, just, uh, this is, of course, a very, very complex problem we're talking about. We're talking about, youth we are talking about youth culture. We're talking about religious problems. We are talking about civil religious problems. We're talking about political cultures and so on and so forth. Uh, bringing up a single answer is impossible, of course, in, in this context. Um, you're right in saying that pupils, especially Turkish pupils, are entitled to wear headscarves. But interestingly enough, is Islamic or Turkish teachers are not Islamic teachers. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, teachers from, from Turkey who are part of the German educational system, they are not allowed to wear a headscarf. And now, how, how These we are state employees, right? These are if, the, if there are state, employees. Are state employees, and yeah. as, as soon as they they are members, or as civil servants, or, or as employees of the state working in public in a public educational system, they do have to uh, to to represent the state as he likes uh, to be represented without uh, himself represented without a headscarf. And this has been a constitutional ruling uh, by the the Central Court in in uh, Karlsruhe. And this had, has been a legal case which has been going on for a long time and which has uh, ensued uh, or with, with uh, well, very heated discussions in the German public. And my, my feeling is that we are not discussing about individual nations in this case. We are not talking about a French problem. We are not talking about a German, uh, a German problem. We are talking about a West European phenomenon. We will probably hear that later on when our uh, colleagues from Italy and Spain will present their papers. The Italians are latecomers and 
the Spanish are latecomers in letting in foreign, a large foreign migrant population. But the problem is there. If, if you will reduce it for the, for the point of the discussion to a problem, but we have had uh, a, a large uh, foreign workers uh, uh, population since the 1950s. And, uh, of course, this is now one of the major problems in the German discussions. Also, and I try to, 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 to point out that in my, in my paper. On the one hand, we are discussing, when we are discussing the, pro the problem of civil, civil um, religious or civic um, consciousness in Germany, we are talking about the weight of history. That was the per first part of my paper. And the second part is actual or topical challenges, the challenges of the present. And these are not confined within the German boundaries, but they are the same as the ones you pointed out. And uh, the, the discussions, as I said, are as heated in our country as in France and possibly in Italy and Spain. Just let me add one, one thing to what he said here about um, civil servants. And uh, we have actually a, a similar uh, policy. Uh, at least in, the, in regard to the military. There was a famous Supreme Court case where an Orthodox Jew wanted to wear uh, a yarmulke uh, in the military, and the military says, no, we have uniform standards, and uh, he uh, appealed under uh, the free exercise provision of the First Amendment and lost his case. And the distinction here, of course, is that you don't have to have a job in, in, in the military. You can choose uh, some uh, other kind of profession. You are required uh, in France, as in the United States, to go to school and there are only three Muslim schools in all of France. So for most Muslims, uh, that means basically that they have to go to the public school. So uh, there's a much greater imposition here regarding a school uh, a child who's not permitted uh, to wear a yarmulke or to wear uh, a headscarf or to wear a cross than would be the case uh, where uh, people are simply uh, denied uh, in one, one area of employment where uniformity of dress is considered important enough to override these uh, other issues of uh, free expression of religion. I don't think the Germans and, and, the, and the Americans have differed that much in, in terms of policy in this area. Well, please, over here. Yes. Thank you. 
Let me ask you this. Do you think the policy is one that's going to encourage assimilation of Muslims or to alienate them further from French society? Economic issues, you mean? Yeah. yeah. So, so this is a question about, for those who, who didn't didn't understand it, um, th this is a question about multiculturalism and uh, whether there are infringements of rights that are not just political and religious but also economic and social, and particularly, I guess, a question about the social disadvantages in the in the banlieue. Um, next question, please. Mm.
A simple statement there that the French Republic is a religion that took over the... the, Can I disagree with that, that you can't have two religions at the same time and say that we do in the United States? We have the civil religion, which is represented by the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. We have the biblical religion. Most people who adhere most intensely to the biblical religion, evangelicals, uh, Catholics, they're also patriotic Americans. And they believe in, you know, they will defend, for instance, the, uh, the view that um, all men are created equal, uh, appealing to Genesis. We're all created in the image of God. And they see uh, the two, the civil religion and the biblical religion, as complementing and reinforcing each other, not as contradictory to each other. So it's at least possible to do what Maurizio uh, mentioned, to have a civil religion and a revealed religion. Pro- Professor Elstein, please. Professor Elstein. Thank you. Again, for the, for the record, I have to make a, 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 a commentary, a short summary of this. Um, this is a defense of pluralism and a statement that, that Geneva is a different place to Florence. Um, please, there.
having to accept code written in Brussels versus the local. And I wonder just briefly, as Netherlands or Holland is accepting new citizens, they can't just quiz them on documents. They have to, to are you Dutch enough? Or it's more like moral kind of, are you tolerant? Or how, what are the bars that we expect of a good Dutch citizen? It's a question about the formation of European identity and then a statement at the end I thought very interesting about the Netherlands. Um, I, I don't know whether people in the audience are aware that new immigrants to the Netherlands, uh, obviously mostly Islamic immigrants, are now compelled to see a film in which there's a woman, a topless woman sunbathing and in which there are two men kissing in order to indicate that this is what Dutch culture is fundamentally about. Um, LAUGHTER uh, 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 Paul Sigmund. So, so the question is, uh, does the Christian democratic compromise really involve so many compromises that it compromises itself out of existence? Um, it, it's, it, it, it's interesting, I think, that uh, 
John Paul II used to talk uh, when he was looking for compromises about uh, Abrahamic faiths. Um, so not talking about a Judeo-Christian tradition, which some people talk about when they want to exclude Muslims in Europe, uh, but talking about uh, a tradition that is really a tradition that's inclusive rather than exclusive of Islam. Um, there was a question up here. Yes, yes please. Why is it difficult to find unifying symbols in Germany? Can you keep this for a moment? And uh, I think there were one or two other questions. Yes. People like Maurizio and myself identify themselves as Europeans, not as Italians or Brits. What does that have as a consequence for religion? Um, I think uh, we've probably... Uh, one more, one final question then. The question is, is the new civic religion relativism? And Maurizio would like to ask a question as well, please.
any sort in violence or power. So the, the, the question is uh, about the difference between Catholicism in uh, Europe and uh, the United States. And I, I, I mean, I think uh, since we're having a, a German element to this as well, we should say that actually in the, in the 19th century, uh, the German Catholic Church was at the forefront of the struggle for civil liberties against Bismarckian autocracy. Um, uh, so uh, maybe we could have some final, final comments from the panelists. Well, there were basically, if I remember correctly, only two questions as to the German case, which is interesting, very interesting for me, because uh, normally the German case um, provokes a lot more heated discussion than the French case, but it seems, it seems things are changing, which is maybe a sign of normalization, let's put it that way, which I think is very helpful and just an observation, to, which, I, which I like to add. Um, well, there was one question as to uh, the problem why the Germans couldn't agree on common symbols. And there still are, if, if, you, if you now observe the, the actual discussion, they still are not very, very proud about their, their, their National um, Remembrance Day. As I said, the 3rd of October is a day which passes by almost unnoticed, apart from the fact that it is a public holiday. Um, well, the, the, there is no e easy answer to that, but uh, obviously the German state from the beginning in the 1870s was, a, was not a centralist state as France, but a federal state to start with. We didn't have only one king. We had several kings at the same time. And for that reason, only for that reason to begin with, we didn't have a national festive day because the Bavarian king could never agree to join a party, a public presentation of the new state where he was second in line to the German emperor. And this, this, this was only one of the small but unsoluble questions or problems which sort of uh, um, 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 characterized the problem of German federalism from uh, the beginnings in the 1870s. But 
Of course, this is only an epitome of what was taking place because of what, what uh, um, characterized this, the whole situation. German society is characterized by its very strong cleavages, social cleavages, religious and cultural cleavages. And this added to the problems of bringing about one common national set of core values which everybody wanted uh, to adhere to. And this, uh, and, and maybe we could uh, join or add, add uh, your question in, in um, that um, connection or in, in combination to this, uh, this problem because, of course, it, it would be easy to say, as, or it's not an easy, uh, an easy hypothesis with, uh, with which uh, Aron came up. Obviously, the Weimar Republic failed also because they couldn't, the political elites and the public couldn't agree on a common set of value or core values. But again, was that the problem, or was the problem not lying much deeper than that? They couldn't agree on the, uh, the common set because, um, to put it very, very shortly, we had a kind of very strong tradition of authoritarian uh, uh, of authoritarian, of an authoritarian political culture of the of the uh, of the Kaiserreich, which continued right into the Weimar Republic, and this political culture was again characterized by, as I said in my, my talk, by political milieus, which didn't really manage to overcome their own limitations. The workers' culture remained within its own camp, and the conservative Protestant culture again remained within its own camp. And they didn't merge, at least, and even not in, in, to a small measure. And for that reason, of course, there would have been, ideally, the possibility of coming up with a set of core values. But nobody would have really agreed to, really to, to festively, uh, um, to festively uh, defend them in, uh, uh, in the advent or when um, observing the advent of the Nazis to power. I think the problem is much, or was much more complicated. Uh, I'd just like to uh, address two, two things, uh, two questions that uh, came up. First of all, the question of European identity. Are Europeans losing their national identity for a, a more encompassing European identity? I wanted to suggest a third possibility, and that is that the hyphenated identities, as we have in the United States uh, here, although there have been at various times people who oppose the idea of hyphenated identities, uh, at least uh, certainly in uh, the later years of the 20th century, it's considered perfectly legitimate for people to consider themselves Irish-American, Polish-American, Ashkenazic, Jewish-American, and, and, and so on. And we have sort of multiple layers to our identity. And uh, an Irish-American, uh, a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant-American, a Jewish-American, a Polish-American, Chinese-American is no less of uh, an American than any other kind of American, but we accept the fact that people can, in addition to their American identity, which we expect to be very important, they can also have some other uh, cultural or religious uh, or uh, ethnic uh, identity uh, as uh, well. And at least in America, uh, I think it's worked out uh, very well. In, in America, in many ways, although there are white nationalists out there who say that America is a white Protestant country and we don't want more Asians, we don't want blacks, we don't want Jews, and so on, um, America has, has had a, a more peaceable domestic uh, situation than many of the more ethnically homogeneous uh, countries of Europe. Certainly uh, Greece, Germany, France, much more ethnically homogeneous, religiously homogeneous the United States. They've also had a much more tumultuous uh, kind of uh, uh, political history in, in, in the 20th century. And I suggest that uh, at the expense of being called a chauvinist, that America might be doing something right here and others might have something to, to learn from it. So I think hyphenated identities might, might be the future 
uh, for, and you can be then uh, an Italian uh, European, and you can be a, a British uh, European, and, uh, and a French European, and so on. Uh, at least it's worked in the United States. The other thing I wanted uh, to comment on is this uh, idea, and, and I think Maurizio is right, that America never really had the equivalent of the French Catholic or the uh, Italian Catholic Church. It never had a church with political power uh, that was anti uh, you know, anti-democratic, uh, uh, monarchic. And I think that largely explains uh, the different history. But I would say here, uh, why do you want to keep looking at the past? I mean, I think, you know, it's like the, the Irish uh, in Northern Ireland who want to relive the Battle of the Boyne in the 17th century. I mean, you have bad ap- historical experiences. Okay, forget them. Move on. Uh, you know, uh, here, and uh, I think, I mean, Tocqueville uh, point, pointed this out, that uh, America was much better uh, in, in terms of uh, it's, Americans are much more religious because they never had an established church and uh, this uh, actually led to a greater acceptance of religion and more religious people and uh, I think that uh, the American model here is replicable I, I might be wrong but I think that it is replicable but people have to sort of jettison uh, some of their old ways of thinking which were rooted in a different historical context and uh, one that uh, is really no longer uh, applicable to the present situation uh, in Europe where they're trying to integrate uh, very religious uh, people from third world countries and are not doing a very good job of it. Thank you very much. Now we have a short break. Uh